Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And this week we're uh, joined by Angela Myers. Angela Myers believes in the power of two words. She says that these two words can change your mood, change your mind, change your lives and change the world. If we understand them and know how to leverage them. Those two words are, you matter. And we spend the next 40 minutes or so diving into the power of those words, as well as the practical application of those words. Um, Angela, if you've never met her before, is a lifelong educator who is taught in almost every grade level uh, from kindergarten all the way up through college or a graduate school. And so she's incredibly knowledgeable, uh, with a ton of energy. Uh, join us for the next 34 minutes and let's dive into the power of two words, you matter. The thing that we start with every podcast and we ask every guest this is uh, instead of what do you do for a living, it's who are you and why do you love what you do for a living? Absolutely. I'm Angela Myers and at my absolute core, I am an educator. And at the purest sense, the root word of educate means to lead out, to bring forth. So whether I'm working with an individual, whether I'm in a classroom, whether I am doing a, a large event, my goal is not only to notice and note the genius in my presence, but to bring it forth, mostly to the individual who doesn't realize how extraordinary they are. And I've, I've done that my whole life. It's like my default um, plan, not plan, but hmm. biology, if you will. Yep. So. So highlighting the genius, is that something that yeah. you said you've done your whole life? Yeah. Uh, I mean, let's go back to childhood. Was there a time where yeah. you recognize, I know, I'm sure we can all look back now and recognize it, but uh, I'd be curious to know when you're in the moment, was there a time when you recognize that you had this unique gift that you wanted to share with the world? I think it's so funny as a professional speaker, people seeing me now, I actually was a shy child. I was very unsure of myself. And the I don't place, believe it. I don't believe it. I know. It. No one believes that. I, believe I know it. you. When you connect to people on Facebook, they're like, who are you? You're doing what? Um, but I think when I really started struggling, I think every everybody at some point has struggled with their identity. So I, I position self-esteem and self-worth in very different buckets. I struggled with self-esteem all the way growing up and you know wasn't the popular kid I didn't really fit in anywhere and it really wasn't until um, college when what I what I felt my zone was was actually learning so I was very passionate about learning specifically science so I actually went to medical school and in that process um, was working through that, was putting myself through college. I worked four jobs, all with all with children, all with families. And that is where my soul became on fire. And I knew um, like, like there's nothing else that I thought of. And so I was so grateful to have a professor in my life sit me down and say, you know, talk to me about your future as a doctor. And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, nothing. I got nothing for you. I have no passion at all for the learning. I want to know everything I can. Um, but it doesn't, didn't light me on fire. I never had a vision for it. It just was, I was following that plan. Well, if you're good at science, you're good at math and you know, you can do this or you can do this. It was just one of those things. And I, I'm, he's like, well, we're going to fix that. You're going to be a horrible doctor. You must be a teacher. <laughs> and from that moment, I never looked back 33 years later. Like it doesn't matter what position I'm in, what role I've taught every grade from preschool to graduate school. 
the same tenants, the same structures, the same values, the same me showed up all the time. The content might've shifted, but um, my mission as an educator never, ever shifted. So a question on that, and I didn't think yeah. we'd go down this kind of thread, uh, <laughs> is, uh, and it's something I, I think about often, as yeah. I have three young boys as well, and I think about my own work, and yeah. I, I was a former high school teacher, and think about the students I got to influence yeah. doing that work. Um, what What is it that educators can do, you know, pre-K-12, yeah. to help students start fit, like, going down that path earlier because I, I i know so many stories oh. uh, in the schools that i taught in every kid wanted to be a doctor yep. or they wanted to be a lawyer or it was like two or three buckets that was it maybe a teacher that's right. and that's all they saw and i was and i taught high school math and i was always trying to figure out how do i broaden their view of the world so they that's recognize right. that like there's so many ways to go what what's your what's your take on that what can we do so let's go back to what we just experienced when we're asked as adults who are you and why do you exist? That is, it's like, even I went into a long story. I mean, I'm an educator, period. That is why I exist. I wake up every day and think about how am I gonna change lives and change the world? When people ask me like, what do I do? And I say that, they're like, oh, that's so cute. That's just so sweet. I'm like, yeah, I'm dead serious. That is what my job is. As educators, we change lives and change the world. But when we ask a normal individual just walking around like, what is it? What, who are you and why do you exist? They default to what their job is. Our identities are around yeah. our job. If you think about five-year-olds, and I'm getting to the answer to your question. That's if great. You think about five-year-olds, they are 1000% confident and convicted about who they are. They know who they are, why they exist, and they can label it. And when you look ahead at people who, what you would say, lived in their element, as Ken Robinson said, the intersection of their passion and their purpose, and and stayed on that path, they always speak to knowing that at a very young age. So when a child tells you, I'm a dancer, I am Nick and I'm an artist, or I am Dustin and I am a teacher, this isn't some frivolous like, oh, you know what, I, you know, and there's still that thing of like, well, an astronaut looks, you know, fun to do, but at your core, very young, you know what you were meant to be. Hmm. And then they get to school and they're educated on someone else's vision of who they should be and who they could be. And your voice gets drowned out in that your voice on, well, I think this, and well, maybe this, and I have an affinity to this, and I really love, oh, that's nice, but this is what you need to do. But this is what, and it's not intentional. It's, well, sometimes it's overt, but sometimes, but, but many times it's just the system because the system isn't set up for individuality to shine. Individuality mm -hmm. causes problems for education. So what we can do is, as parents, as teachers, instead of thinking so much about who your child is going to be, take a look at who they are now and listen to them. Notice them, note what it is they get lost in time in, what it is that they repeat and ruminate on, what it is that lights them up that you have to pull them away because that's what passion is. Passion isn't what you're good at doing. To me, as I hear that, I think, um, so my, my wife is really good at that. Um, yeah. uh, she's a former teacher, still works yeah. in her school district, and she does a good job of 
helping even teach me how to notice our sons even better. Yeah. yeah. But one thing I notice is um, my oldest son really wants to let please me, right? And I try hard to let him know that like him just being pleases me. Right. right. However, he knows that, you know, I had tried to play college basketball and had dreams of being a big athlete. And so he feels, it felt for a while, he just was trying to be play basketball because of me. And I've been trying hard to break that down because I really don't care what he does with his life right. and what he likes. And so what's some advice that you have for teachers or even parents to kind of, you know, we, we want them to look up to us. So right. I, that's good, but right. I don't want them to have to feel like they have to be me or be my wife. I know. That's a really hard one because I am a recovering perfectionist trying to not just please my parents, but please everyone. And I think some of that comes with time and some of it comes with more experience because nope. more chances you get to experience your areas of affinity and your areas of passion. It doesn't mean that that, that space where you come alive or that element of you that that just is you um, necessarily is a path that leads to a job, but your ability to grow your capacities in that time, your ability to grow your resilience and your strength, like the, the root word of passion is to suffer, to endure. So when you look at where it breaks off between what I am doing for somebody else, what I like to do, what I'm good at doing and what I must do, it breaks off when it gets hard. When something, so basketball might be a path that he thinks is pleasing you, but when basketball gets competitive, when it gets hard, when it gets brutal, he's gonna find out that breaking point. Now, he can go down that path and learn on his own or through other experiences. And how old is he? He's seven. Yeah, so seven's <laughs> early. So exactly. there's a lot of other experiences ahead that he might find something like, I don't know what it is, like maybe it's baseball or golf or something else that he it just becomes hooked on and immersed in. And all of a sudden basketball, like basketball, what? What is basketball? And that there's a natural progression in that. But I think exposure is a huge part of that. Exposure and not trying to deter them because kids think they know what they know, but not trying to deter him never to go in your path. but let him try your path and let him see where that goes. And I think one of the things that people don't recognize is the pain part of doing something that you must do is okay. that the reason the root word is to endure is to suffer is because when you find that you're willing to push yourself across any limit that you can imagine. And even though you say 50 times a day, I'm gonna quit, I'm, I'm gonna quit, I can't do this anymore. You get up and do it again. Nope. Because the act of not doing it, you know, ask a dancer not to dance, ask a surfer not to surf, ask a painter not to paint. And it's akin to asking them not to breathe. And I think there's so many people that haven't felt that kind of conviction, not only about what they do, but who they are and who they become while doing it. And I think it's because we don't allow exploration. We yeah, don't that's... simply allow free time to explore, to experiment, to find out on our own. The the first guest we had on uh, yeah. the Change Starts Here podcast is a, an incredible woman named Julie Morgenstern. And she wrote, a, a, <laughs> her recent book was called A Time to Parent. And the thing yeah. that really helped me, I mean, I, I feel like I, I, 
hope this podcast helps everybody else. But really, this is about my couch because I'm just really trying to grow yeah, as a person absolutely. and everything else. And so uh, it was the difference of before I talked to Julie, and I'm sure you're about to blow my mind here in just a minute with uh, all the stuff that I've learned about you. Um, the I know I gave my kids individualized and undivided attention, right? So we've got three and we spend yep. time rotating. Yep. But I spent almost 100% of that time in the world that uh, Julie called the kind of a teaching world. So it's like the adult world. Yes. So I'm there to teach. I'm playing games with them to teach. Yep. I'm going right. outside to play with right. them to teach. I've got to get into their world to learn from them. Yeah. And I feel like that's a that's a, a thread of what you talk about regularly. Absolutely. Is that something that resonates with you? 100%. The most profound research that I ever did I wrote a manifesto called the Sandbox Manifesto, and I went to 15 different places in the world. I was in Dubai, I was in Hawaii, I was in Florida, all over, and I went to neighborhood, I had friends, so I didn't just go randomly as a stranger, <laughs> but went to different sandboxes and then recorded just being in their world. And what I noticed is there's this unwritten set of laws around how young kids not only see the world, see their work and see others in it. And I had released the manifesto on the, on the anniversary of the Clue Train Manifesto, which was the manifesto of the social web written by people that lived in it, that didn't just visit it, but were residents in it and said, there's a new way of operating, a new way of seeing our work, seeing our world and seeing our place in it. And you could line them up. The, Clue Train Manifesto had 96 tenants. The Sandbox Manifesto said 10, but it is it is based on honor and humbleness and expectation and boundaries and all of these beautiful things. And it didn't matter if the children spoke in a different language. It didn't matter what age, that when you enter their world, the sandbox, if you will, there's just a way of being. And that it, that is where I get my favorite definition of the word genius. When I talk about what's your genius, like you asked who you are, to me that is what is your genius. The My favorite um, definition of that is to keep the spirit and soul of childhood all the way through adulthood. And that's really what the tenets of the new world are. When I look at how we're asking grown-ups to be, and we can learn so much from children in their purest state and play is their purest state. And I didn't go in to direct them. I didn't, it's hard. I didn't go in to teach them. I didn't go in, like, it's so funny. I'll send you the tape of it because then I interviewed kids after, like if you were to teach someone else that's coming to your space, what would you say? And kids said stuff like, you need to be humble. You need to share the toys. You need to come and not stay in just your space. Like you could see kids pulling each other out of isolation into collaboration and there, but you can't throw the toys outside of the sandbox. You've got to keep the sand in. So it was these really complex um, social constructs and ideas. And I'm like, God, if adults could do that, if we could just, we talk about it, but if we could just play nice with each other, what our world would be. And we've tried to build a whole internet around those principles and staying secure to those businesses around that. So uh, before I went down about five different rabbit holes and I apologize, you were telling me no. how you got to a teacher when a professor said, do not be a doctor, yes. don't be a teacher. And 
for this question, yeah. Uh, I, I want to lead it into something that you also touched on. So I'd like for our audience to know, you know, your teaching experience because it's yeah. vast, right? Yeah, so absolutely. Who we're talking to, but then also the plane I'd want you to land is you, you kind of hinted at earlier with the challenge of education. What's, what's a troubling trend or two that you're noticing in education that we have to yeah. go after right now? Absolutely. So my trajectory on this path, I started in kindergarten, which you cannot have a better education as an educator than to be surrounded by 35 year olds who teach you how the world works and teach you what learning is. They taught me how to build community. They thought, taught me about how to grow individuality in the space and presence of other people. They taught me about show and tell and what the real purpose of show and tell is. It's not um, rushing and showing off what's in your backpack. It's understanding that contribution is a fundamental human need, a human driver. And it helps us remind each other that we matter and that we're needed by each other. So I started at kindergarten and then we had this thing called looping. I don't know what it's called, but you got kindergarten and first grade and then you got the same group in first grade. So I did that for like that loop um, for four years, pre-K, kindergarten, first grade. So some kids I had for three years, families, it was incredible. And then I taught every grade level up to high school um, and then skipped high school and then went to university and then went back as a consultant, trainer, coach, and then worked with every grade level, high school kids so all, the, all the way. What were you teaching at university? What was your focus there? So I had two, um, so I was at the university for 12 years and I had the best position literally ever. I think they invented it. So our school was the highest poverty school in the state of Iowa and people don't think of poverty when they come to, to Iowa, but it was 100% free and reduced lunch, 135% mobility, and 35 to 40% of our families were incarcerated or homeless. So a really, uh, a really challenged um, space. So we were the first school to go year round and we had these community partnerships and university partnerships. And the university that I was in, Drake University, um, was a partnership and I was li liaison between the education school and our school in wow. this um, ongoing partnership. So I taught undergrads from all the grades. So when they came in to do observation at freshman year and they were thinking about being an educator and then they went in all the way to student teaching, that was all embedded not only in our school, but I actually taught the courses at my school site. So I didn't really have to leave my school. We, and nope. so when we had assessments at our school, we brought in the, you know, assessment undergrad class and they helped us do assessments. So because I knew the teachers, I knew the classrooms, I knew the dynamics of the community. I was able to place all of, not just student teachers, but place all the emerging um, paths that you go through as a beginning teacher from your observation to your student teaching. So that was like a dream to be that in between. And then I taught um, graduate school in literacy and linguistics and leadership. So I did that for 12 years and um, did the first blended, what was called blended online course where like we introduced this really crazy thing called the internet and we had this thing called blackboard and it's like and like what are the and of course i'm like embracing everything um and so it just was incredible um and then i did a lot of community work in my that was actually my dissertation before i dropped out was community literacy and understanding the power and context of language in a community and so it just was this 
beautiful thing that I got to go and see every dimension of education because so, not as a separated thing, but as a part of like parents and teachers and staff and training and kids and all of that. So it's like, yeah. a uh, and just, just so you know, so when I first started with Franklin yeah. education, like 10 years ago, yeah. I spent a lot of time in Iowa, oh, you, did. Uh, you folks, uh, help prepare me to get to talk to you today. They are, but I was told one of the things that they said I would enjoy the most is just yes. your extensive experience in all facets of education. Uh, and so I was just throwing up a soft lob so that the audience also knows that when I ask you a question, what are some of those troubling trends that you see in yeah. education right now that we have to go after? Yeah. It's not just, I was a teacher and I kind of taught that grad level and I, yeah. You've really been immersed in it. And so yeah. my question for you is right now, you hit on it earlier about individuality, I think, but yep. what, what's something that we need to fix either as superintendents or principals uh, in our in our school systems? A hundred percent culture. And by culture, I mean, so, so for 33 years, I've been embedded in every aspect that you can think of with education on every angle, every side. Um, but also simultaneously, I have been doing time and work and study and learning in what we would say industry or real world as I've been an entrepreneur for 35 years. So I live in both of these worlds and move between what we would say would be the emerging, you know, digital culture, especially digital culture and yep. how the workforce is going, how the world is going from startups to innovative companies and what every one of those has in common and by culture, I also mean leadership is a, so the first time that I heard of something called customer experience or the first time I heard of the customer journey wasn't in an education context. It's in a business context. So I'm thinking, why are hotels so deeply, passionately, they don't just care about their customers, all of their research and development, all of their industry initiatives, the conversations are about how to create a transformative experience. And I'm like, well, shouldn't we be talking about this? We've got the most important customers, not only to our community, to the world, that we are absolutely, you know, not just from a warm, fuzzy place, wanting them to have a transformative experience, but there's certainly, you know, so I look at, so then I, it got me turned on about two decades ago to, to Gallup. And I think about Gallup and I think, so they're doing, I mean, they do engagement stuff with school, but I think about like how much employee engagement matters, how much money is spent on it, how much money is lost on it. And we treat those things, experience, engagement, customer perception, customer perspective, customer journey, and it irritates educators. Like we're not a business. No, but we are in the business of changing human beings' lives. And so thinking about how they feel about that, what they wish about that, what could be better about that, then it not only makes them feel better, but it makes us feel accomplished because we're doing our job. That's our job to change lives and change the world. And we cannot do that when kids don't feel like the experience at school is one that recognizes them, honors them, meets their needs, values them. And this is not just speculation. So when I looked at like the deep work in customer engagement, customer experience, 
I worked with South by Southwest, I think this was eight years ago, we did this large mass scale study of 500,000 students. We hit every kid K through 12 in as many demographics as possible. And we asked them one question, what would make you run to school? What would make you run to school? And when we got the totality or the summary of that research was very simple. I wanna matter and I wanna do work that matters. I wanna know that what I'm doing and what I'm learning is gonna to lead to something, is gonna be transferable. And I didn't use those words. And so then when we went in and said, well, like, what does that look like? If there's one thing that you could say that a teacher could do, a principal could do, your bus driver could do, that would help you understand that it was worth running to school on your worst day. And so you would anticipate with all the conversations in education around cool technology, really cool tools, you know, more this, more that, more money here, more that. This is what kids said. If somebody smiled at me, <laughs> if someone said my name, if someone noticed that I did something different, like something concrete, like I got bangs today, and I had uh, dark hair yesterday and I colored it blonde. I'm wearing glasses and I normally don't do that. Um, if somebody celebrated something about me personally, they recognized that I had a birthday or recognized that, you know, I did something in the game. If someone asked me something about myself, even in the hallway conversations over and over again in middle school and high school, especially with young men, say my name. And I started thinking like, Oh my gosh, what are you talking about? Because I started my career with five-year-olds. So if you didn't notice a five-year-old, if you didn't say their name, if you didn't recognize something unique about them and pause for a moment before you jumped into your content. So this was just a whole new life-changing body of research for me that helped me understand that when you tell a human being you matter, that those words carry life-changing weight and that you have a responsibility to fulfill that essential need. And we have to do that at a systems culture level, not on a warm fuzzy celebration day on Mondays or Fridays or once a month. Yeah, so I, I love where your head is about um, the one thing that we can really fix is culture, right? Yeah. And Control. interesting enough, again, we're just meeting each other now. So right. looking back at anything I could find, yeah. you know, I, I very much, uh, I'm inspired by your belief that all children matter, all children have genius, which we can definitely dive into yeah. right now. And it's always been this case, but the one reason that I came to Franklin Covey Education yeah. was I wanted to help teachers and administrators be seen, right? So it wasn't like, yeah. we just gotta go straight to the kids. Well, what about me right. as an adult? Like I need to be poured Absolutely. into. So how, how do we create schools that have a culture that that says you matter to That's the right. adults. Yeah, and going back, even though initially my research was with kids, when you replace that question and you looked at employees or grown-ups, and we asked the same question to the largest employee engagement network online, 27,000 industries, and we asked what would make you run to work. This was a uh, life-changing moment in that body of research and you put those two things face to face, they were the same things. Do you see me? Do you hear me? Do you value me? Do you appreciate me? Do you recognize what I do every day? Do you even notice that I showed up? So that's where it's a bigger cultural thing. This isn't about making kids feel good or about making 
grownups feel good. It's about reminding people of their essential place in our world and in our work and in our lives. So it is a human thing. It is not a kid thing. It is as essential as food, water, shelter, and air. So what you need is for a leader to understand and prioritize culture, prioritize um, whether you want to call it something as concrete as customer experience, or you just want to call it school culture. We talk flippantly about the importance of relationships, but we don't prioritize our time and our focus and our conversations about relationships, about like even this conversation about SEL right now, social emotional learning, as if it's a thing, as if it is separate from learning, as if emotion is separate from how individuals process the world and process the work. So um, having a leader that it, it's very hard at a systems level to change a culture, which is why culture is so connected to leadership. You have to have a leader that says, this is what matters most. And the other things are nice to have, but this is what is need to have. And I've had the incredible fortune of working with leaders like that and show data of transforming their schools just on culture. And we still, as a academic community, downplay this really, really robust science of human emotion and human behavior, which is so disconnected for me as a well, scientist. Yeah. To, to your point, though, I, I mean, I, I spent a quite a bit of my career doing school transformation and turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, the even though there's tons of data and my belief is exactly right there, what you're talking about is yeah. culture matters. Um, the pressure and the uh, like, the insane pressure and the measurements that we're using are very much tied to that academic performance. And until that, it's until we're celebrating uh, the culture yeah. scores or whatever yeah. the soft things we're trying to go after, and that's on the scoreboard of report of like reporting out. It's going to be really tough to have educators to have the freedom to feel like they can run after this. Going back to what we can control, I totally agree to you, uh, agree with you. And I'm hoping that what the pandemic did clarify, and I do see um, spouts of hope in this, um, that it revealed our vulnerabilities as human beings yeah. and, and the lives that are at stake. And I don't want always to associate mattering and the concept of mattering um, with physical life, with suicide. But I'll just give you an example. Um, I'm working with this AI company and what they do is track natural language that kids are using in their casual conversations at school. And there's logistics around all that, but basically what are kids saying and how can we examine those patterns in language to understand what they ideate towards as they're experiencing the totality of school and everything that is, their courses, their teachers, the environment, the culture, all of that. And so they have been running the same program. And I just did a session with them two weeks ago. And when they looked at ideation over the last nine months, just the last nine months, um, ideation for self-harm has gone up over 90%. Ideation for loneliness is 95%. 
and this is the most terrifying, ideation for suicide has has increased 95%. Mm. So that's the data that terrifies me. And so there, there is nothing that is going to solve this until we get underneath what is the core cause. And I know I sound like a broken record, but at the core of everything from apathy to agony in that whole scale, underneath it is a human being that is a teacher, that is a leader, that is a student, that is a parent that is asking the question, do I even matter to you? And if you cannot answer that or show through your actions on a consistent basis that you do, you are not going to fill this gap because in all the data, there is an assumption gap. If you asked all the parents of every student that said, I don't feel valued at school. If you asked every one of their parents and every one of their teachers, do you value Dustin? Do you value, do you appreciate him? Does Dustin matter to you? There would be a report that says every adult in Dustin's life, he matters to. The key isn't perception is someone's reality. So if I asked you, Dustin, like we're asking tens of thousands of kids, do you perceive that you have value, that you matter, that you are essential in this world and at your school? And when tens of thousands, if not millions of kids are saying to us, no, then there's a problem. And that problem is not going to be fixed with a quick, like, let's buy this cute SEL program and give kids stickers and let's, you know, have a wee day and jump up and down and sing for a day. And this isn't employee of the month. This is deep seated cultural change. Now that sounds very dim, but I have a solution, a scientific solution. And that's what I've had the privilege of sharing over that the last be my next question. So that's good. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because I'm not one. I, I have to have a solution. Like that's why I exist to have a solution to this. So based on neuroscience, which is actually, so I didn't leave science altogether. My background is neuroscience and linguistics. So based on the combination of those two things and Dan and Chip Heath, um, wrote an incredible book about this called Peak Moments, in, in game-changing book. But they're not the only scientists. I mean, this has been around. Malcolm Gladwell talked about this in Blink. But what we understand about experience and the way your brain processes any learning, any experience, whether you're at a hotel, whether you're going to Disney World or you're in math class, is that not every moment is weighted equally. So you enter an experience, it could be um, math class from 8 to 8.50, or it could be Disney World from 8 a.m. to 8.50 p.m. And it is what are the peak moments or what scientists call primacy and recency. It is the first two to 20 seconds of that interaction and the last two to 20 seconds of that interaction that seals the totality of the emotion you will associate with that experience. So if I said, Dustin, how was math class? You might say, well, it sucked. Can you tell me why? Nope, it just sucked. Dustin, tell me about Disney World. It was amazing. It was magical. Can you tell me why? No, because your brain can't get to it. So if we just looked at the first interactions of the day, and so part of um, one of the research studies we did with language, after we got the feedback that kids didn't hear their name, that they didn't get a greeting, how important greetings were. 
in the way that the tone, the intention, the eye contact, the smile, greetings mattered. And so we followed kids and took the customer journey and we followed middle school kids because that's where a lot of the breakdown is. And they could literally go all day without any human recognition. Like if you think about, you go to math class, good morning, boys and girls, welcome to math. Go 50 minutes, good morning, boys and girls in science class today, get out your book. Good morning, boys and girls. In it's not intentional, it's the way the system is set up. So if we could focus on how we meet kids and how we leave them, we could change everything. How we meet kids at the beginning of the day. So think about kindergarten. Where did I meet my kids? Outside my classroom door, with my arms open wide, with every kid getting a smile, a hug, and their name said. Not because I had some scientific knowledge 33 years ago, but because five-year-olds demanded it. They would not allow me to go forward unless I validated them. I noticed them. I recognized them. I said their name. And then how do we leave each other? So if we just think about shifting in our classrooms, in our staff meetings, in our school, in our opening, the way that we meet kids and the way that we greet them, it would change everything. And then the bonus, so I call this framework 252. The bonus is I pick five human beings in the day. This is what you were talking about, Justin, or Dustin. And I devote one minute to each of them. And I just am present to like be witness to who they are and then tell them something about what I noticed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be fancy, but just acknowledge who they are right now, what you notice, what you appreciate, what you value. Um, what made you smile and and even if you did five people a week it it makes you accountable to be present with people and that is what people need most they don't expect perfection they want presence they want to know that you're not distracted in the interactions with them so you can take that framework and you can turn it to Disney World you can make it at a hotel you can put it at a restaurant you can put it at anywhere that you say that experience is amazing. I love that store. I love that brand. I love that place. And it comes down to that same science. You felt seen, you felt heard, you felt valued, you felt noticed, and you felt like you would be missed if you didn't come back. Yeah, I, I think those are, and that's awesome advice. And I think the power of having and creating schools that have this culture where kids yeah. believe the school needs them yes. more than they need school yeah. is something that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. I'm thinking right now, just personally, so that's that's really helpful for, I think, about the, the culture. Uh, but personally, you know, as we're educators or we're parents or just yep. friends in this virtual world, um, the notebook that you've talked about using yeah. as a teacher, where you just yeah. capture the things you notice and then sh make sure you're intentional about sharing that. Right. So that's what I'm saying. So right now... How are you doing that with adults? Because I'd love for people to walk yeah. away from this conversation, having this, this tool in their toolbox. Yeah. I'm so happy you know about, I have it with me always. This is my <laughs> noticing notebook, 2021. This is about the 10th one. Um, <laughs> Already the 10th I, one? I I'm impressed. From, yeah. I learned this from five-year-olds. I'm dead serious. This isn't something I preach. This is something I practice. And, and that's the key. So everything we're talking about is common sense, which is why people blow it off. Like, oh, so common sense. Well, duh, of course I smile at people. Of course. Well, you know what? Common sense does not equal commonplace and common practice, or we would not have the stats that we have. 
whether it's employee engagement or kids saying, I don't feel valuable or anyone no. not feeling appreciated. <laughs> so this framework allows us a, a structure to practice in. And if I didn't have that structure, I wouldn't do it. You get yep. busy. You're normal. We are, you know, and that's a, I mean, this has been a practice of mine for 33 years before the internet, before our worlds were just a blur of distraction. So two things about um, what it does for you, not the other people, but what it does for you is when you think about why children are so hopeful, why they're just such hopeful human beings, it's because they are practiced in seeing the world through eyes and an attitude of awe. Everything wows them. Everything is a gift and appreciation. Just being outside with a leaf, <laughs> with a tree, with a stick is amazing for young people. We have forgotten how to be amazed. We have forgotten how to be gracious and in awe of this life that we have. And we have to practice to find it in a world where negativity is being pumped in our brains and our bodies 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if you don't have a practice to pull out of the worst circumstance and days, then you start losing hope and you start feeling hopeless. So that's what the noticing notebook is. And when I started, I've always kept one, but when I did it oriented to people, it's again because of five-year-olds, not because of science, but five-year-olds like wanted me to notice everything all day, every day. And so I just, I had 25 kids and I just cut them in five each day. And I'm like, you five are going to be awesome on Monday and I'm going to notice you. And I promise I will. I started writing it down. <laughs> and so with that practice outside, I've kept that because it's changed me. So I still to this day, no matter what, not, not always perfect, five people, definitely one person a day, but I pick five people to notice, to recognize, and to say something about. And what this does is even though you don't see my notebook, I take what I witnessed in it and I share it with you, which is like, it's like giving someone a front row seat to their brilliance. Yep. Dustin, this is what, and people, every single day I do this on a direct message on Twitter, people think I'm joking. They're like, is this really you? Did you write this? Oh my God, I can't, I mean, it's like the most stunning thing. And yet it should be the most natural thing to like, we idolize complete strangers on a TV. We act like everyone around us is so amazing, but the very people that we interact with every day, how often do we tell them what we admire in them, what we notice in them, what we're grateful for, what we appreciate. And it is a practice that I will never give up because it's a practice that has develop me and define me as a human being. It has nothing to do with giving them a compliment because I don't expect any reciprocity from it. Most of the time I get shock from it. People, right. <laughs> they don't, they literally think that this is some joke or some robot. Like, did you really know, how, how did you know that? Or what? And I, I'm like, I have proof. I heard you say that this week. I was in a room with you or I was, I, I saw what you said the other day and that took a lot of bravery or whatever it is. And it's just, it's a conviction and right. it, it changes the way people interact when you notice something about them that's and they really, know when it's fake. No, so. that's, that's really inspiring. Like I said, I, I think the key for this is one, having a practice that you, yeah. it's a habit, right? So Absolutely. when you're like, if you and I are on a team together and you just happen to notice yeah. it, write down, 
You may not come back to it that day, but it may be within the next week where you come back. I don't know what I do if I lost this. I really don't. It's, it's got awesome. my record of, it, it's like my record of gratitude for like, no matter how, how stressed I get or how down I get, this is my record of hopefulness <laughs> because hope is a verb. It's a practice. It's not something that I just, um, you know, wish for randomly. I have hope because I'm surrounded by people that are amazing. That's great. I, I think uh, we. I wish we had more time because I'm at the clock. Like, uh, so in the last you know minute we have together, the, the question that we ask every guest before they leave us, and it doesn't have to be anything that you've written about recently, yeah. uh, but something that's just on your heart to share with people. Change starts your podcast is about change from the inside out, knowing yeah. that change is messy. It's full of false yeah. starts, and um, it's focused on educators for sure. And I just want to know what's. What's one piece of advice right now that you have for educators um, as they try to implement change in their life? Absolutely. Um, that is where my heart is, even though I've been talking about kids, but it's teachers. So not only would I remind you that you matter, but in addition to that, part of mattering is knowing that you are enough. And that is what I want teachers to hear. That's often the most, the first thing that I say to them, you are enough. You showing up every day, your perfectly imperfect self is exactly what your kids need. You don't have to be this or wait for this or do this or only. Um, I hear educators say so often, and it literally makes me cringe. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a first year principal. I'm just a mom. The word just is the most dangerous word in the human language. You put that in front of you and you delete everything that you were born for. So you're not just a teacher or a mom or a parent or whatever. You are extraordinary. You matter and you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to know all the answers. You don't need to have all the solutions, but you do need to be full and part of that is practicing believing that you are enough. That's awesome. And I, I know that's a tough thing to do. So, so I think hard. there's habits that people have to put in place yeah. to remind themselves they matter every day and that they're yeah. enough. Um, this was incredibly refreshing. I think for me, I've, I'm taking away uh, some tips for how to be a better parent, but also how to, um, to your point, I, I believe I notice lots of people and things, but since I don't, have a system to capture it and to really recognize it and to go back and to, to share people, let people know that they matter. Um, uh, that that insight alone is, I think, life-changing for me and so many people around me. So thank you for all you yes. do. Thank you for your sincere passion for changing lives and making sure that everyone that impacts you or is around you knows that they matter. Um, I think it's just catching fire. So hopefully we get a chance to talk again soon. I appreciate I, it. I can't wait. I'm super honored. And Dustin, if you haven't heard it today, you <laughs> matter. Thank you for what you do. I'm so honored to be a part of this conversation. Someone who has influenced my life and my learning for decades. Just keep up the good work and, and know that you are changing lives and changing the world. Well, thanks, Angela. I appreciate you so much. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcasts on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.